This is Guns and Butter. You know, what is what is gig work? Gig work is a transformation of the uh, labor markets uh, so that the capitalists make the workers provide the, the working capital. And instead of capitalists providing working capital, the capitalists control the customer, they control the software and the communications with the customer, but it's the worker who has to provide his own physical capital that before the business did, the capitalists did. In other words, provide your own car, your own gas, your own insurance, and so forth. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. Today on Guns and Butter, Dr. Jack Rasmus. Today's show, Neoliberalism, From Expansion to Stagnation. Dr. Jack Rasmus currently teaches economics at St. Mary's College in Moraga, California, on the subjects of U.S. economic policy, U.S. political change, financial business cycles, History of Economic Thought, American Labor and Unions, and U.S. Economic History. He is author of Central Bankers at the End of Their Ropes, Monetary Policy in the Coming Depression, Systemic Fragility in the Global Economy, Epic Recession, Prelude to Global Depression, among many other books. His newest book is The Scourge of Neoliberalism, U.S. Economic Policy from Reagan to Trump, which is the subject of today's program. Prior to teaching and publishing for 20 years, Dr. Rasmus was an economist and strategic market analyst for various global technology and market research companies. Before that, for more than a decade, he was a local union president, contract negotiator, strike coordinator, and organizer for various unions. Dr. Jack Rasmus, welcome. My pleasure to be here. You write that neoliberal economics in its historical context within the U.S. is the third major restructuring of U.S. capitalism to occur in the 20th century. Your new book, The Scourge of Neoliberalism, U.S. Economic Policy from Reagan to Trump, is an analysis of both the ideas and the actual practice of neoliberal economics that began in 1978 or that is late in Jimmy Carter's administration, and continuing in its various restructurings right through to the present. According to your new book, neoliberalism represents an economic shift in response to the crisis capitalism encountered in the 1970s. Could you describe the crisis of capitalism in the 1970s? Sure. Uh, To understand that, uh, step back even historically a little further and and understand that uh, U.S. capital has been uh, very flexible. Uh, And in the 20th century, uh, there were at least two other major restructurings of U.S. capitalism uh, facing uh, challenges and opportunities. Uh, The neoliberal restructuring is really the third in the century. And and as I predict later in my book, uh, there's a fourth coming, but we'll put that aside for now. The first restructuring occurs after the 1907 financial crash. Uh, And at that time, U.S. uh, capital saw a great opportunity uh, to take the stage here as a uh, 
co-hegemon, you might say, with uh, British capital. Uh, and uh, major restructurings occurred in the U.S. economy and in U.S. economic policy. Uh, in the book, throughout the book, I talk about four major policy areas. Uh, one is fiscal policy, which is really tax policy spending and debt management. Monetary policy, which is uh, uh, Federal Reserve interest rate money supply policy. Uh, external policy, which is really about trade and money, global money capital flows and currency exchange rate. And um, uh, industrial policy, uh, which is about uh, containing unions and uh, deregulation, privatization, uh, social programs, uh, and um, uh, employment, uh, labor markets, and so forth. Uh, now, in the book, I, I say that at different periods in the history of U.S. capital, these four policies have played a key role in maintaining or trying to help achieve uh, the dominance of uh, U.S. capital, both domestically over its, its domestic challenges, usually the unions and the working class, and globally over other capitalists that it's contending with, uh, you know, on, on the global stage. These four areas of policy, fiscal, monetary, external trade, and industrial, uh, in a given period have a different kind of a mix and weight different weight and mix is given to it. And whenever the capitalists have a great opportunity or a great challenge, uh, they mix up these four policies in a certain way uh, that helps them restructure the economy and helps them uh, maintain dominance domestically and globally. Like in the, the first restructuring in 1907 to 1914, that's when we get the income tax, that's when we get the Federal Reserve and there's other changes and so forth in labor markets. Uh, and that helps the United States uh, prepare itself for uh, World War I uh, and prepare itself to take the stage after World War I uh, as a co-equal with uh, British capital. Uh, then the second restructuring comes uh, in the wake of World War II, from 1944 to 1953 or so. Uh, and in that restructuring, uh, the U.S. assumes the role of the sole global hegemon, and it tames domestic labor in the unions with the Taft-Hartley Act and all these other rules and regulations. It, it, it tames the, the militancy of, uh, of labor during the 30s and, and the 40s, so it, it contains the domestic challenge, and it, it establishes itself as the global hegemon uh, in the wake of World War II. Now, that enables the economy uh, to the capitalist side of the economy to grow very robustly, just as it did in the 20s after the first restructuring. After the second, it grows very robustly, uh, and the U.S. is dominant for several decades. But that particular mix of those four policies after World War II, which were different than they were right the mix before World War One. Right. Uh, while that in the initial years following the restructuring helps uh, expand U.S. capital, uh, it sort of runs its course. And over time, that particular mix uh, becomes contradictory uh, to uh, enabling the further uh, growth and expansion of capital. Uh, and that's when we get into the crisis of the 1970s. So there's this idea within capitalism, there are these internal contradictions that 
lead to a crisis and opportunity uh, that are then addressed by the capitalist class by changing their policies to enable those policies that had become outmoded to catch up to the crisis and allow the further development of capital once again. In other words, reascend uh, in a new phase. And U.S. capital has done this three times in the 20th century. And neoliberalism should be seen as the response to the crisis of the 1970s and a remixing of those four policy areas in, into a particularly unique mix of neoliberal policies that I talk about to a great, great extent uh, from the late 70s up to the present in the book. That's the core of the book. Uh, in the beginning of the book, I, I challenge the whole idea that most of these accounts of neoliberalism uh, focus just at the level of ideas, you know, focus on uh, um, uh, free markets or efficient markets and so forth. And these, these are ideas. And some of the ideas of neoliberalism are, are designed to obfuscate the reality of neoliberalism in practice. Uh, they're ideological. They falsify in other words, what's really happening. And, and today you can see the ideology of neoliberalism. You know, what, what's that? Oh, tax cuts always create jobs. Oh, free trade benefits everybody, right? Just increase the money supply, keep interest rates low, and that will benefit the economy. You know, those are ideological notions that have no substance in fact when you look at it empirically. So a lot of the accounts of neoliberalism are really about ideology, and even the critics of it fall into the ideology trap sometimes. I'm interested in the practice of neoliberalism, particularly as it is associated with those four policy areas and that particular mix, and how that is designed to rescue capital, capitalism, U.S. capitalism. The book is mostly about U.S. capitalism, although neoliberalism is global. You know, it's, it was too big a project. I'm interested in focusing on, on what neoliberalism did uh, to address the crisis for capitalism and enable it to once more expand and grow and dominate both domestically and, and globally. Uh, so I'm interested more in the material bases of neoliberalism and how those four policies relate to the restructuring of markets, product markets, uh, labor markets, capital markets and so forth, uh, and production, the means of production, how that is restructured and how those policies play a role in enabling the restructuring so that capitalism comes out of the crisis and is able to even expand more than before. Now, to get specifically to your point, what was the crisis of the 1970s? Because as I said, you know, the, the mix of, of uh, policies, capitalist policies that were associated with the restructuring coming out of World War II worked great for a couple decades for U.S. capital. But then uh, the internal contradictions in those policies began to hold back uh, the further expansion of capital. And what was the crisis of the 1970s? Well, domestically, the 1970s was... Union labor, see people aren't, aren't aware of their, their own history that much, but union labor in the early years of the 1970s uh, became very powerful. Uh, union labor was uh, uh, pretty much uh, able to, by that time, establish nationwide contracts like the, the overland freight agreement that the Teamsters had, uh, the pattern bargaining 
in steel, in auto, the big regional uh, agreements among all the building trades, you know, like half of California was one contract with the building trades. Labor had achieved this, this element of power, and the second biggest strike wave in U.S. history, uh, only exceeded by the post-war strike wave, uh, post-World War II, occurred in 1970-71, and unions achieved the major unions at that time, the building trades first, and then it spilled over to the Teamsters Union with the National Freight Agreement, and then it spilled over to the auto, uh, auto unions and the steel unions and so forth. What they achieved was, and I'll, I'll pause on this because people won't believe it, 25% increase in wages and benefits in the first year of a three-year agreement. Back then, three years was the max agreement, but they achieved 25% in 1970-71. Well, the capitalists could not, even as powerful as they were, stop that. Uh, so they brought in Richard Nixon to freeze wages and roll back those wages. In other words, they turned to the state to do that for them. Uh, at the same time in the early 70s, we had all these social movements challenging the political status quo of capital, uh, the civil rights movement, the anti-war movement, the environmental movement, women's movement, other ethnic movements. Uh, the whole country was in motion, you might say, and the unions were in motion. The first time that this had really been uh, happening and the big worry was, well, these are all going to link up and then what are we going to do? Uh, so it was a crisis uh, domestically. The challenge, the, the domestic challenge to capital was, was significant in the early 70s. At the same time, the global challenge to capital was significant. Uh, Europe, Europe was challenging the U.S. for markets and for exports. Uh, Europe uh, had a euro-dollar market uh, where they could go and get money. Uh, for investment. Uh, they had recovered from World War II and were expanding on their own. Uh, and they were demanding from, from the U.S. that the U.S. Uh, pay them in gold when they bought exports. And, and, and that was called the World War II Bretton Woods standard, where the dollar at $35 an ounce of gold was linked to gold. It was the dollar gold standard. And the Europeans were demanding, and the U.S. was losing all its gold to Europe. And uh, Nixon stepped in to offset that challenge. So we had a challenge domestically and a challenge uh, globally going on to U.S. capital. And they turned to the state, as they always do in these crises, uh, to bail them out. But anyway, the point is, there was this, this global challenge and a domestic challenge. And by the way, I missed, uh, missed the point that the Middle East was uh, nationalizing uh, U.S. Uh, oil interest in North Africa and the Middle East. Uh, that was a challenge at the same time. Uh, and there were other global challenges going on. I'm speaking with political economist, professor, and author, Dr. Jack Rasmus. Today's show, Neoliberalism, From Expansion to Stagnation. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter. Now, does capitalism have to grow in order to be a sustainable system? Oh, of course, yes. Uh, but it's not just growth, it's uh, stability, uh, both economic stability, uh, when you see uh, more frequent and deeper recessions. Uh, and you got to look at it globally, by the way, now. You cannot just look at it in the U.S. Uh, or when you see financial instability uh, occurring more often or in greater magnitude. And 
when you see the interaction of financial and economic instability intensifying each other, uh, then you know that uh, you know the system is heading for uh, a period of, of crisis and in instability. Uh, so it's not just economic growth. You know, economic growth would be uh, uh, real growth. In other words, investment and job creation and employment and GDP and so forth, right? But there's a financial side to all of capitalism. And capitalism has become more financialized in recent decades, increasingly. Uh, and you need to uh, analyze both uh, the cycles within the financial side and the real side because they are interacting now and exacerbating each other. Uh, one of my my arguments with uh, colleagues, uh, both mainstream economists and some Marxist economists, is that you're not paying enough attention to this financialization of capitalism that is destabilizing uh, capital, U.S. and global capital, increasingly here uh, in recent decades. Uh, and you have to understand what are the dynamics and, and financial cycles and dynamics in real cycles uh, because they are mutually uh, exacerbating and feeding off of each other now. Uh, so yes, uh, it has to grow, but it has to grow uh, in a stabilizing way. And one of the arguments I make in this book and previous books is that what we see today is, first of all, a massive increase in liquidity and money, money capital being created by the central banks in the post Bretton Wood period, uh, that is fueling the growth, fueling the growth of financialization. To me, financialization is three things. It's not, you know, uh, the amount of profits going to financial corporations or the amount of employment in it. That that's the superficial look. To me, there's three things going on, and neoliberalism has enabled and promoted this financialization through its monetary uh, policies and other policies. First of all, what is financialization? Um, it's the expansion of highly liquid financial asset markets. You know, some people call it derivatives. You've heard the term. But there's all kind of uh, expanding markets for stocks, for bonds, for all kinds of financial securities, for exchange-traded funds and stocks and bonds and, and currencies and everything. The world is awash in these highly liquid financial asset markets. You have the rise of what's called shadow banks. Shadow banks are not your J.P. Morgan, Wells Fargo, and uh, so forth. Shadow banks are these these new uh, financial institutions that have always been around and always expand right before a crisis, uh, because they are deregulated, unregulated. They work in the shadows. They take high risk and they precipitate uh, financial crashes. Uh, you know, investment banks, insurance companies, boutique banks, pension funds, uh, fintech, uh, all of these are, are what we call uh, uh, shadow banks. Uh, and they're a growing problem and a growing power uh, within the financial system. So you have all these markets, uh, financial assets and the creation of all kind of financial new securities that are traded in these markets uh, in the institutions private equity firms, uh, hedge funds, and so forth, involved in these trades increasingly are the shadow banks. But behind the markets, behind the financial securities, behind the new institutions, is this new financial capital elite, about 200,000 of them globally. And to be in that rank, you have to generate from financial investments 20, at least $25 million a year in income. 
not in assets and income. These are people who have uh, no no national boundaries. They are the true global international capitalists, and they buy and sell these securities because there's so much liquidity out there uh, created by neoliberal monetary policies, uh, and uh, they are increasingly powerful. Uh, you know, look at Trump. You know, uh, who who ran Trump's economic policy when he first came into office? It was Goldman Sachs. Goldman Sachs was, you know, Gary Cohen, the chair of the Economic Council. Uh, Goldman Sachs is Steve Mnuchin uh, in the Treasury. Goldman Sachs was uh, a fellow who, uh, gee, I forgot his name, uh, ran the New York Federal Reserve. Goldman Sachs is everywhere. Goldman Sachs wrote the $5.5 tax cut for the rich here. Two guys wrote that at the end of 2018, uh, Cohn and Mnuchin. They wrote it behind closed doors. There were no hearings on it. They pushed it through at the very last end of uh, uh, congressional sessions and uh, at the end of 2018. And even the New York Times now admits it produced five and a half trillion dollars in tax cuts for corporations, businesses, and the investor class. Not the one and a half you hear, one and a half trillion. No, no. It was actually five and a half trillion, and they do smoke and mirrors to come up with uh, uh, one and a half trillion. You see, they ignore things, they lie about things. They say the economy is going to grow and uh, produce uh, more revenues from lower taxes, which is never true, right? And then they raise taxes on the middle class by one and a half trillion dollars. And that's how you get one and a half trillion when it's really five and a half trillion. Uh, anyway, uh, a growth, you see, uh, fiscal policy is not stimulating, tax cuts are not stimulating growth uh, very much anymore. Um, monetary policy, low interest rates, is not stimulating real growth because a lot of this money is going into financial markets. It's going into financialization. Just to give you one, one example, the big tax cuts which have been going on, which are a, a, a key policy uh, element of neoliberalism, and we've cut taxes on the investor class since 2001 by $15 trillion. $15 trillion, yes. Uh, that's just for the investor class, you know, businesses, corporations, professional investors, this new finance capital elite, you know, 200,000 of them globally. Uh, and the money, a lot of the money flows out, but a lot of the country, but a lot of the money flows into uh, financial markets, even within the country. Well, how would you define neoliberalism? Neoliberalism is a certain mix of fiscal, monetary, trade external industrial policies that that came together with a certain mix and certain emphasis in the late 70s, uh, defined more clearly in, in the early 1980s un, under Reagan, uh, designed to help restructure the economy uh, in face of the crisis of the 1970s that had both a domestic and a global challenge element to it. It was designed to reestablish U.S. capital hegemony globally and uh, to put to bed the challenges by labor and others domestically. And uh, the consequence, the two big consequences of these policies was to push financialization and globalization, both financial and, and real production, uh, offshore uh, into uh, uh, more into emerging markets China and places like that, 
where capital, U.S. capital, would become uh, the leading capitalist uh, player in these emerging markets, uh, both financially and non-financially. And uh, to expand, to accelerate, to uh, uh, U.S. Uh, finance capital and big capitalist uh, profits and, and wealth to a, a, an unimaginable extent. And that's what we have today, isn't it? It's this massive income inequality uh, that has also been a hallmark of neoliberal policies, uh, you know, along with financialization and globalization of capital, supply chains, and so forth. Uh, this is what neoliberalism has achieved. Uh, and, and these are the indicators, you know, the markers, you might say, of uh, neoliberal, successful neoliberal policy over the decades. Uh, so it's a restructuring of, uh, you know, the policies helped restructure the markets, the labor markets. What did we get in neoliberalism and the labor markets? Well, we got the decline of full-time uh, employment uh, as a share of total employment. And we have 50, 60 million now uh, people who are what we call contingent, part-time, temp, uh, uh, gig jobs, uh, you know, on-call jobs, uh, contingent to uh, in a, a full employer relationship. Uh, and we see this in all kinds of industries. Well, that resulted in low wages, uh, no benefits, uh, longer hours, and all of that, you know, expands the profits of industries and capitalists in those industries where you have this shift of contingency. You know, the retail sector, the hospitality sector, even uh, manufacturing uh, in, in, in recent decades here, uh, part-time tap, the, the emergence of gig work. You know, what is, what is gig work? Gig work is a transformation of the uh, labor markets uh, so that the capitalists uh, make the workers provide the, the working capital. And instead of capitalists providing working capital, the capitalists control the customer, they control the software and the communications with the customer, but it's the worker who has to provide his own physical capital that before the business did. The capitalists did. In other words, provide your own car, your own gas, your own insurance, and so forth. Uh, the same thing with um, Airbnb, right? Uh, it's the uh, the consumer who has to provide uh, the quote the hotel, right? Uh, and uh, the software company uh, really uh, brings in most of the profits, uh, and they suck workers into these these gig jobs by at first when there's not that much competition among the workers for the customers, uh, getting, uh, you know, decent pay, uh, even though they don't count the cost of their, their working capital that they have to pay. Uh, and then uh, after a while, you know, you, they bring in so many uh, workers and so many homes uh, that the share of the profits that go to the, uh, uh, you know, the Uber driver or, or the home homeowner uh, are less and less. Go, go talk to Uber drivers today in these markets. You know, they're getting squeezed more and more as they, uh, the company brings in more Uber drivers right, to give it better coverage, but at the same time, the wages go down. Uh, so that's a major change, isn't it? Contingency in the labor markets, uh, gig work in the labor markets. Uh, it's how the labor markets have been restructured. Uh, you know, part of that restructuring, too, is that... Uh, uh, Less and less uh, pensions are, are provided. You know, you got these phony 401ks that don't provide any retirement to speak of. Uh, real pensions were destroyed here from Reagan on. Uh, I'm talking about defined benefit pensions, uh, health care coverage, uh, 
was uh, undermined as uh, health insurance companies got more and more money from Wall Street and bought out their competitors uh, and had to provide 22% profits to Wall Street. So they started cutting coverage and so forth and dropping people off and uh, shifting of costs of health care. Uh, dragging money out of pensions, companies could drag it out and uh, pay for their share of the rising health care costs, but workers couldn't. Um, these are all changes uh, that have occurred in, uh, in the labor markets. And, and I could talk about the product markets as well, how things are produced and where they're produced and when they're produced. Uh, a good example here is uh, uh, the Amazon effect, right? And how product markets, uh, and uh, in this case, distribution, uh, of, uh, and production of products uh, are, are radically changed under neoliberalism. Uh, we can see it with uh, Uberization, gig work. We can see it with Amazon and so forth. But you haven't seen anything yet, folks, until you see artificial intelligence next decade wipe out 30% of the occupations. That's not my prediction. That's the prediction of McKinsey consultants. And these contingent jobs, these low, easy decision-making jobs are going to totally disappear. So on top of contingent labor, on top of gig effect, on top of Amazon effect, you're going to have the AI effect. This is capitalism radically changing product and labor markets. And these policies are designed to assist it in doing that. The policies assist the fundamental restructuring transformation of capital, you see. And when the policies no longer assist and hold back that change, that natural restructuring, uh, when that happens, you have increasing contradictions and the capitalists start looking for a new policy mix. I'm speaking with political economist, professor and author, Dr. Jack Rasmus. Today's show, Neoliberalism, from Expansion to Stagnation, I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter. What are some of the other policies of neoliberalism? Now, you've talked about the labor market. You've talked about products. What are some of the other elements that you would use to describe neoliberalism? Okay, uh, neoliberalism is composed of four policy areas. Fiscal policy, right, is tax policy, government spending policy, and debt deficit management policy. Uh, tax policy, as I've mentioned, neoliberal tax policy is to cut, cut, cut taxes for businesses, investors, and corporations. You know, that's been true from the very beginning of neoliberalism. Just keep cutting it. Uh, neoliberalism and spending is about Increase defense spending more and more. Keep rising the defense expenditures. Uh, and, and that's been going on ever since. Uh, neoliberalism fiscal policy is uh, constrict and roll back, if you can, social program spending. Shift the cost to people or eliminate programs. Uh, and neoliberalism is about, um, so what if we have deficits and debt? We don't care. Uh, by the way, that latter point is also uh, totally different than classical liberalism, you know, which was eschewed the whole idea of deficits and debt. Neoliberalism accepts it. They don't care. Right? So those are the four areas of neoliberal fiscal policy. Right? Uh, 
cut corporate taxes, raise defense spending, cut social programs, and uh, ignore deficits and debt. By the way, deficits and debt, the U.S. debt under Reagan was a trillion dollars, about a trillion. By the time we got to George W. Bush in 2000, it was four trillion. By the time we got to Obama in 2008-9, it was almost 10 trillion. Uh, when Obama left office, it's 17, 18 trillion, and today it's 23 trillion. So is that liberal? No. Those are the four areas, the possible four areas of fiscal policy. Now, what is monetary policy? Monetary policy is, is relatively more simple. It is increased liquidity money into the financial markets uh, in order to drive interest rates uh, down very low, chronic, keep them chronic for a long period of time. Uh, that really began in earnest in uh, 1986 uh, with uh, Alan Greenspan, and it's been going on ever since. Uh, massive liquidity injections, liquidity meaning money injections by the uh, central bank. Uh, my book, Central Banks at the End of Their Ropes and the Coming, coming Next Depression, uh, which was the book that preceded this one, uh, is all about that, all about that transformation after the collapse of Bretton Woods, how the central banks took over uh, and the central banks have ever since just kept pumping money into the global economy, which was necessary for the financialization of the global economy, by the way, but which also produced uh, a lot of these financial bubbles and crises and still is going to do that. Okay, so that's monetary policy, chronic low interest rates, keep them low, whatever Federal Reserve pump money into into the economy, uh, which is quite different than liberal monetary policy, by the way, which uh, which was about uh, uh, a, a stable, uh, what's what's the stable amount of money to provide to the economy? No, uh, neoliberalism is about just, just keep pumping it all in. Uh, what is industrial policy? Well, as I said, industrial policy can be privatizations, deregulation, wage compression, deunionization, which has a lot to do with wage compression, uh, incentives to offshore jobs, uh, and uh, uh, control uh, social benefits and spending, um, uh, you know, insurances and, and health care and pensions and so forth. Uh, you know, that's, that's what we call uh, uh, industrial policy. And, of course, then there's what's external policy, neoliberalism, and, and that's composed of trade, trade policy, uh, and about money flow policy, and about uh, currency exchange rates. And at the core of neoliberal uh, external policy is what's called the twin deficits, you see. The twin deficits mean, uh, ever since neoliberalism, the U.S. has consciously and purposely run a trade deficit. A trade deficit means that we buy more from other countries around the world than they buy from us. We run a deficit. And by the way, we run a deficit with just about every country in the world, every major segment, right? Massive trade deficit since Reagan. Purpose, purposely created. Why? Because part of the twin deficit solution is an understanding with indigenous capitalists around the world uh, that they will recycle that excess dollars that they receive because of the deficit. You see, if we buy more than them, dollars are flowing out net out of the United States around the world. And the dollar is the global currency, so everybody accepts it. Uh, so the money flows out, it accumulates around the world, 
uh, trade deficit as a result, but the understanding is that this money will be recycled back uh, to the United States, mostly buying U.S. Treasury bonds and other assets in the U.S. too. Now, Treasury bonds are the U.S. issues a bond to these investors and they give us the dollars back, you see. Uh, and those dollars recycled back help finance the U.S. budget deficit. And that was where we spend more domestically, the government, than it collects in tax revenues. Uh, and because we have all these dollars flowing back in the twin deficit solution, the U.S. can run greater budget deficits than ever before, which means it can create greater budget deficits by even more tax cuts for the rich and even more foreign wars. If it wasn't for the twin deficits, uh, we couldn't uh, uh, be cutting taxes uh, by $15 trillion in the last 20 years, and we couldn't be raising wars and financing wars by $7 trillion in the last 15 years. You know, this is the first time in U.S. history that we financed wars by cutting taxes. We used to always raise taxes, even World War II, to pay for the wars, or at least part of it, right? No, not anymore. No, because we have all these dollars flowing back. The twin deficits, the trade deficit enables the budget deficit, enables the tax cuts for the rich and corporations, and uh, accelerating defense spending. That mix constitutes neoliberal external policy, you see. This began all with Reagan, pretty much, and it's expanded ever, ever since. Also, the whole idea of external policy is to keep the value of the dollar low in the global markets. Keeping interest rates low helped that. Uh, so monetary policy intersects with external policy in that sense. Why do we want a low dollar? Why does neoliberalism want a low dollar? Uh, because U.S. multinational corporations that have expanded around the world under neoliberalism uh, want to maximize their profits by exchanging the currencies they earn doing business in other countries for dollars. If the dollar is low in value, they can exchange uh, their currency profits for even more dollars. But if the dollar is high in value, uh, well, then the profits they made and local currencies get reduced when they transfer them into dollars, you see. That's why Trump is pushing the Federal Reserve, uh, forcing the Federal Reserve Central Bank to lower interest rates, lower interest rates, because that lowers the dollar. But the contradiction is uh, it also causes instability and low growth in emerging markets and around the world. And, uh, you know, we got recessions, depressions everywhere, and global trade is just about come to a halt. Uh, and uh, when that happens, uh, capitalists uh, abroad, uh, be they U.S. multinationals or not, uh, send their money to the U.S. for the higher interest rates, you see. And that increases the demand for the dollar and raises the dollar. You know, you got to transfer your, your local currency uh, into dollars if you want to buy treasury bonds, you see. Uh, so Trump is trying to push the Federal Reserve to keep it low in order to keep the uh, uh, profits flowing from multinational corporations. Uh, Trump talks about the wall of money coming into the U.S. He thinks that's great. Well, that's just an indication that interest rates in the U.S. are higher than the rest of the world, and the rest of the world is suffering even more from uh, the economic uh, uh, stagnation that exists now globally. Um, 
But Trump, uh, you know, if he's going to pursue his tariff policy, uh, you know, he wants uh, a low dollar policy to go with it. Uh, you know, that's just to contemporize uh, a little bit of what's going on here. But uh, neoliberal policy, external policies, trade policy, global money capital flows, uh, exchange rate policy, and also this twin deficits idea. So those are the four areas. And as I just described it, uh, that particular mix of neoliberalism was not the same as the mix that came out of uh, the second restructuring in World War II. Different emphasis on these, these different policies. And that was different than the one right before World War I. So you see the capitalists uh, adjust and flexibly uh, manipulate these policies in order to ensure product and capital markets and labor markets uh, produce the most profits for them. Okay, so the neoliberal twin deficit policy, that includes the trade and the budget deficits. I have never understood how the U.S. government was able to ensure that excess dollars globally would be cycled back into U.S. treasuries, thereby funding U.S. deficits and the military and the trade deficit. Why do countries buy U.S. treasuries instead of something else? Because they're more stable, you see, and you, you're assured of a return. All the financial portfolios want a percentage of their investments in U.S. treasuries because they guarantee you're going to get a rate of return. Uh, you know, your local uh, stock markets, and they tend to be in emerging markets, go up and down. They're quite volatile. Uh, so that, uh, you know, they, they want a portion of it uh, stable. Uh, but these indigenous capitalists, you know, who are also heavily influenced by U.S. multinationals doing their business in their, their countries, um, you know, if they don't play ball uh, with recycling a certain amount, you know, uh, then the U.S. has tools and, uh, and options uh, to um, reduce the ability of those countries to sell their products into the United States, which means they're going to make less profits, you see. Uh, so, uh, you know, it, it's kind of a, a, an understanding, right? If, if, you want, if you want to sell your goods into the U.S., and if the U.S. is going to let you sell the goods, because we're the biggest consumer market in the world, you see, uh, then, uh, you know, you're going to have to uh, play ball with us and recycle some of this. Some of it. Well, you know, a good example is uh, Saudi Arabia, right? Uh, up until recently, now the U.S. is self-sufficient in oil, but up until, you know, the last three or four years, uh, you know, the U.S. ran a huge deficit with, with uh, OPEC and Saudi Arabia. We bought so much more oil, right, from them, ran a deficit. Uh, what did the Saudis do uh, in turn? Uh, well, they invested in not just in treasuries, but we, we the government, uh, U.S. government, allowed them to invest, uh, buy up certain industries, including ports and everything in the U.S. Uh, and, uh, you know, in addition to that, buy a massive amount of uh, U.S. war goods from us, uh, aircraft and so forth, right? So the money all got recycled that way. And, uh, you know, it's profitable for the indigenous capitalists as well. You see, the... U.S. U.S. imperialism is fundamentally, in some ways, different than British and the old colonial imperialism. It's an imperialism of finance, not just uh, you know producing goods lower at lower wage costs than these other countries. That's a simplistic 19th-century view 
of what imperialism is. Imperialism is is heavily financialized now in global finance capital. and uh, these money flows are very, very critical to it. And when countries refuse to play ball as part of this, this system, whether it's twin deficits and uh, all that goes with it, you know, politically and militarily, uh, that, uh, you know, the U.S. takes action against them. Sanctions, right? Take sanctions. I'm speaking with political economist, professor and author, Dr. Jack Rasmus. Today's show, Neoliberalism. From Expansion to Stagnation, I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter. A good case is Venezuela. Look at Venezuela. Won't play ball, wouldn't play ball with the United States. So the U.S. set out to wreck its currency as part of wrecking its economy. And it did a very good job. It wrecked the currency and then prevented Venezuela from selling its goods, its oil, to other countries by threatening sanctions on other countries because that's the way Venezuela would earn dollars in order to buy food and medical goods from other countries that U.S. sanctions threaten you can't sell to Venezuela and that causes a crisis in Venezuela. If Venezuela doesn't have dollars, Venezuela has to uh, create more boulevards uh, that uh, reduces the value of its currency. No one wants to take boulevards because they're falling in value. You see, it's a it's a whole. I wrote an article, the uh, uh, financial imperialism, the case of Venezuela. You can read it on my blog, JackRasmus.com, uh, that a lot of people are, are reading about, trying to understand, uh, you know, how financial imperialism works. Uh, I had a book uh, a few years ago called uh, Looting Greece, A New Financial Imperialism Emerges, how uh, Europe, led by Germany, uh, was exploiting its weak periphery uh, of the Eurozone, uh, in this case, uh, the most weak, which was was uh, uh, Greece, right? How financial flows and financial imperialism worked in the case of uh, of Greece to keep it within the fold and to exploit it. Uh, in other words, focusing on on uh, extracting value, uh, not factory by factory, but by having the domestic government do it for him and sending the money to uh, 95% of all the interest paid on all the debt provided to uh, uh, Greece uh, by the Troika, as it was called, uh, 95% of all those debt payments ended up in Northern European banks. It's financial imperialism. Uh, Europe tried to establish its own small version of the twin deficit solution, which has failed, by the way. Uh, but the U.S. version, the global version, is still doing quite well. And you got to understand uh, Trump as uh, his whole trade external policy is designed to ensure the continuation of this uh global hegemony and trade relationships and the twin deficit for another decade or two. That's what all this restructuring attempt by Trump in terms of trade relationships is all about. Uh, It's not working so well, uh, but uh, that's what it's about. Because the global economy is slowing, you see, and the global trade pie is getting smaller uh, or not growing as much. And the U.S. capitalists know that, and uh, uh, they want to make sure uh, that their share of this not-so-fast-growing or shrinking global trade pie uh, remains for U.S. capital. And, uh, you know, whether the Europeans or the Japanese or whoever has to pay the price with a lesser share, well, that's their trouble. You see, it's all about maintaining these global relationships. 
Uh, that's what the external policy is about. In your book, The Scourge of Neoliberalism Under Neoliberal-Induced Restructuring, one of the many policies you list to restore U.S. economic hegemony for several more decades was the introduction of tax incentives for U.S. manufacturing to relocate offshore. I didn't realize that the U.S. government promoted offshoring of U.S. manufacturing. I thought it was only instigated by corporate greed. No, both both go hand in hand here. Uh, look, there there's uh, tax policies uh, called uh, investment tax credits uh, and uh, accelerated depreciation, which is really a tax a tax cut. Uh, you allow companies to write off real investment faster. In other words, take it off the tax bill they owe the government. Uh, this particular uh, uh, tax provision called the investment tax credit was created uh, first under uh, Kennedy. Uh, in other words, businesses would get a 7% tax cut off of their tax bill if they invested right, in real investment, plant and equipment and structures in the U.S. Uh, but they had to show that they actually did it before they got the tax cut. Uh, under uh, Richard Nixon... Richard Nixon allowed the 7% uh, up front. You didn't have to show you actually did it. And the government would spot check, but you know, you could get away with it, claiming you did it when you didn't, didn't do it or did more than you actually did, right? Now you get to Regan, and under Regan, the investment tax credit uh, was uh, uh, not only could you claim it up front, but wherever you invested General Electric, didn't matter if you invested in the U.S., you know, if you invested in Mexico or Canada or wherever else, uh, you could still claim it. Well, that was a way of subsidizing, isn't it? And the Export-Import Bank, the same thing, uh, a way of subsidizing the offshoring of jobs. Uh, so the tax policy was designed to, to support uh, and to aid the whole policy of globalizing uh, meaning uh, moving supply chains production offshore uh, during the ne neoliberal period. Uh, so ironically, uh, workers voted for Congress people who passed the investment tax credit, uh, as I just described, that uh, ended up with their companies moving offshore and them losing jobs. Uh, so they voted for people who, who moved their jobs offshore. Well, now, was the investment tax credit, was that purposefully instituted by the government to offshore U.S. jobs, or was that just uh, something that happened that wasn't planned? Uh, well, you know, they knew what the effect of the investment tax credit was, and uh, I'm sure these Congress people knew when they said it doesn't matter where you invest, as long as you invest, you get the 7% credit. They, you know, they're intelligent people. They knew that a lot of this was going to move offshore, already, uh, because the drive for free trade was, was well underway. Uh, free trade actually uh, you know, begins under Ronald Reagan, uh, Canada, first free trade uh, agreement, uh, and then um, you know, expands under, under uh, uh, Clinton, of course, Mexico. And then uh, what you got was a lot of bilateral free trade deals under George W. Bush. George W. Bush tried to Established a free trade agreement throughout uh, South and North America. It didn't didn't make it, but he got it throughout the Caribbean, uh, all of Central America. In other words, um, so uh, they know when you open up uh, the free movement of capital, and and uh, 
equipment with these other countries uh, that it's going to flow there, right? Uh, they know that. And, uh, you know, the tax policy um, provided an in actual incentive for them to flow there. Well, why would the U.S. government promote the offshoring of U.S. jobs? Because big business lobbyists wanted it. That's why. You know, they don't don't listen to uh, necessarily the interest of, uh, of workers in this country. I mean, look, there's 35,000 registered lobbyists in Washington alone. 35,000. Do you have any of them? Hmm? Maybe the FLCIO has one. Uh, but, uh, you know, where are all these guys come from? Hmm? Well, who's paying for them? Well, you know who's paying for them. How could, how could and how did such a socially destructive economic system, such as neoliberalism, take hold, both in the UK and the US? Well, it, it took the, uh, the taming of social movements and it took the destruction of, of, the, of unions uh, that might oppose it. You know, certainly if it didn't destroy them all, it sure put them on a defensive and, and struggling just to uh, uh, stay afloat. Uh, you know, the sources of opposition to this uh, were, were destroyed. Uh, big business uh, really uh, in, in the late 70s uh, took over uh, the Republican Party like, like never before. Uh, big business got involved in, in politics. Uh, look, you know, be before uh, 1980 and Reagan, um, CEOs, uh, you know, rarely got involved with uh, political lobbying. Uh, after uh, after Reagan, uh, I've seen studies that show that uh, they spent half their time lobbying, lobbying uh, political uh, representatives, CEOs. Yeah, uh, that was a big change. In other words, the business class, uh, given the crisis of the 70s, said, hey, we got to take uh, direct control of this. And the first thing they did was use the Republican Party as a way of exerting more direct control. The Democratic Party uh, got... Uh, corporatized even more um, a decade later. You know, the, the Democratic uh, Leadership Conference, the DLC, is the corporate moneybag wings of the Democratic Party. And uh, there was a big struggle there after uh, the, the loss in 1988, and the DLC faction took over. You know, Democratic Party used to be a coalition, uh, more or less balanced. Uh, but uh, DLC, the moneybags, took over. Their boy was Bill Clinton. Uh, and uh, Gore, uh, and uh, of course, uh, you know, Obama got the nod as well. Uh, so the DLC has been running, running the Democratic Party, and we, we're, we see this fight going on right now for, for the soul of the Democratic Party, right? You see uh, uh, Sanders uh, challenging it, and you see the maneuvering going on by the leadership, the corporate moneybag wing of the Democratic Party, who want Joe Biden. Uh, and if Joe Biden doesn't make it, they got this kid uh, back up here, uh, Buttigieg, right? Uh, and uh, they've they've got uh, a Warren who they're trying to instigate against Sanders to, uh, uh, you know, split the vote on on the left, on the progressive left. Uh, those are the only players right now, except for Bloomberg. Bloomberg is in the wings. You see, the whole strategy of the Democratic Party leadership, the DLC, the money bags, the corporate wing today, is not to allow any of those candidates, particularly Sanders or even Warren, to get a majority of the delegates before the convention. 
they they want to split and and split all the the primary votes and then have a a managed convention i believe where they're going to bring bloomberg in and bloomberg sitting there in the wings waiting you see getting himself known popularized spending all his money to get himself known not worrying or trying uh, it's all public. You know, he's not spending a lot of money on the ground in this state or that state. He's, he's, he's popularizing himself, uh, you know, with the delegates. And um, I, I think they, that's their strategy, right? The point here is that uh, one of the reasons they got away with all this is that the, the capitalists have really taken over the two political parties like never before. Not that they didn't have interest, uh, influence before, uh, but uh, – you know, the whole idea in, in 1978-80 with the Republicans and in, in 1990-92 with the Democrats was to solidify their control. And uh, the DLC faction in the Democrats is now the ruling faction and has been for decades in the Democratic Party. Being challenged uh, by Sanders, they're not going to let him ever get the, ever get the nomination. Dr. Jack Rasmus, thank you very much. My pleasure. Anytime. I've been speaking with Dr. Jack Rasmus. Today's show has been Neoliberalism, From Expansion to Stagnation. Dr. Rasmus is a political economist, professor, and author. In addition to writing and teaching economics at St. Mary's College in Moraga, California, he is a playwright. His plays include 1934, Fire on Pier 32, and Hold the Light. His most recent book, among many others, is the Scourge of Neoliberalism, U.S. Economic Policy from Reagan to Trump, which was the subject of today's program. Dr. Rasmus blogs at jackrasmus.com. That's jackrasmus.com. His website is kiklosproductions.com. That's kyklosproductions.com. His Twitter handle is at drjackrasmus. He hosts a weekly radio show, Alternative Visions, on the Progressive Radio Network on Fridays at 2 p.m. Eastern. He may be contacted at rasmus at kiklos.com. Guns and Butter is produced by Bonnie Faulkner, Yaramako, and Tony Rango. Visit us at gunsandbutter.org to listen to past programs, comment on shows, or join our email list to receive our newsletter that includes recent shows and updates. Email us at faulkner at gunsandbutter.org. Follow us on Twitter at GNB Radio. Peace.